You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. Summer hours have kicked off at my full-time job, so I feel like I have a like perpetual three-day weekend for the next couple of months, which I'm very excited for. Uh, This week I hung out with all the 20-somethings at my job at a Dave & Buster's and shocked the intern when I told him how many numbers I was beyond the age of 30, so that made me feel awesome about myself and also contemplate freezing my eggs more than the time that one of the 25-year-olds didn't know what TRL from MTV was. No movies this week, frankly, because there's nothing in my neighborhood, or at least geographically convenient to me, that I really want to see. It's also very busy this week. I just, the obvious one I could go see is Little Mermaid. I I don't care. And the fact that they've taken, like, one of my favorite, maybe my favorite Disney movie, or the of the animated ones, and then made it 45 minutes longer in live action. I'm like, do I care? I don't think I do. I know I'll end up seeing it, but I don't think I'm going to see it in theaters. And just wait, it will be one of the reviews next week. I have a feeling. So uh, let's get on into the the stuff and the things. Roughly around the time last week's episode went live, <laughs> it was announced that the DGA had made a preliminary deal, meaning there's probably not going to be a DGA strike. The next step will be for the DGA members to ratify the deal that has been presented to them, which, of course, involves a vote, which, as of this recording, is currently underway. Why am I betting that as soon as I publish this episode, they'll be like, yay or nay to that? Specifics of the deal majorly have not been made super public, but there have been not-so-subtle grumblings from the WGA members as to their frustrations that once again the DGA struck a deal with the AMPTP while they, being the WGA, were actively on strike. It's not off the table. The DGA members could choose not to adopt the new deal, which would send everybody back to the bargaining table. But given what's in the parts of the deal that have been made public, I would be quite surprised if they did. There was also AI stuff put into their deal, um, officially considering AI not a person and therefore not an employable thing. This was definitely to uh, appease the writers and definitely the SAG individuals as they're um, heading to the the table. And if not this week, then next week, I think all the days are blurring together. June is just one big, long day for me, I feel like. But that's coming up next. But yeah, the DGA is not going to be affected by AI. That is a director's assistant directors and the everybody else that falls under there were probably other than maybe grips and PAs had to be the least worried about any of this AI stuff. So it was definitely like a power play move on the part of the studios to be like, look how reasonable we're being about this. It was definitely a, a move to kind of make things with other guilds go smoother. A smart one, but it w- it was a move. <laughs> 
Now, on to this week's Stuff and Things, also known as This Week's Topic. This week, two performers, often known as The Boys, who would become the most famous double act in the world at the height of the Second World War. In fact, they probably made the most famous comedy sketch of all time. But proximity, ego, and circumstances beyond their control would ultimately tear them apart. This week, the life and careers of Lou Abbott and Bud Costello. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. On the St. Louis team, we have uh, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellas on the St. Louis team. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You know the fellas' names? Yes. Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean the fellas' name on first base. Who? The fella playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who is on first? Have you got a first baseman on first? Certainly. Then who's playing first? Absolutely. William Alexander Abbott was born in New Jersey on October 2nd, 1897 into a showbiz family. His parents had met while touring in the Barnum and Bailey Circus. His mother was a bareback horse rider, and his father was an advanced man, who was the person traveling in front of the circus to ensure booking, security, and the like before the circus reaches the next town. When Abbott was a toddler, the family moved around, eventually settling near the Coney Island section of Brooklyn, where his father became a longtime advanced man for a burlesque circuit. During the summer when Burlesque was on hiatus, his father worked instead at Dreamland Park on Coney Island. Abbott dropped out of school when he was 10 to also work at the park. One of his early jobs involved convincing people to enter the Hall of Mirrors, and after he'd purposely get the park patrons lost within the maze, would charge them 10 cents to guide them back out. In his early teens, Abbott signed on as a cabin boy on a Norwegian steamer, but was soon forced to shovel coal, which is quite the demotion. He would work his way back to the United States a year later. At age 16, Abbott began working in a box office for a casino theater in Brooklyn, and also a burlesque house on the Columbia Wheel. He spent the next few years in that field, rising up to treasurer. Burlesque at this time was typically exotic dancer acts with risque comedy bits breaking up the performances. Abbott fell in love with the medium, watching the shows from backstage. In 1918, while working in Washington, D.C., he met and married Jenny May Pratt, a burlesque dancer and comedian in her own right who performed as Betty Smith. They'd remained married to each other their entire lives. Abbott then became a burlesque producer in Detroit, working at the National Theater. He was responsible for putting together a variety show every single week. Doing this allowed him to familiarize himself with all of the classic burlesque routines. Abbott began performing himself in 1924-ish as a straight man in his show when he could no longer afford to pay one. He continued producing and performing in burlesque shows for the years to come, slowly rising in popularity. His straight man character was typically very rough and tumble, ensuring that all of the sympathy and laughs would go to the comic of the double act. If you don't know, a straight man's basically the one that's kind of like 
He's the straight man. He's not really going for laughs. He's kind of there to facilitate the comedian and rein the comedian in when necessary and just sort of guide kind of be, to kind of to be like the steady hand on the tiller of a, of a comedy ship, if you will. Abbott would spend the rest of the decade rising in popularity on the burlesque circuit, but unlike many of his contemporaries, major success always seemed just out of reach. That would change, however, in the 1930s, when his path would cross with the partner that would change everything. Louis Francis Cristello was born March 6, 1906, also in New Jersey, the son of a silk weaver and an insurance agent. Young Costello, again, just going to use stage names throughout to make it easy on everybody, was a gifted athlete, specifically with basketball and boxing. Costello would say later on that he took his professional name from actress Helene or Dolores Costello, but by the time he'd chosen that name, his brother was also using the name Costello in his career as a musician, so it was probably that, but we'll never know for sure. Young Costello had been a huge fan of Charlie Chaplin, often ditching school to go see his films. He would see them enough times to make sure he could imitate everything Charlie did on screen. So it should come as no surprise in 1927, after graduating from high school, that Costello hitchhiked to Hollywood to become a movie star. But when he got here, he could only find work as a laborer or as an extra. His athletic skill did bring him the occasional work as a stuntman, and he was actually an extra in the Laurel and Hardy film The Battle of the Century from 1927. You can see him sitting ringside, but other than that, it just wasn't happening for him. In 1928, after Sound had taken the world by storm the year prior and not having a penny to his name, Costello decided to head back east in order to get theater experience, which was becoming a desired trait in sound actors. You had to be able to speak well. He hoped that training in the theater would give him an edge. Costello got stranded in Missouri, but the crafty young man persuaded a local burlesque producer to hire him as a Dutch comic, which meant he would perform in a German accent to delight the immigrants of the day who had trouble understanding English. This whole act would be considered wildly un-PC by today's standards, but it was a huge, huge hit at the time, and Costello would stay with the company for about a year before returning to the East Coast. In New York, Costello continued working in burlesque for the next several years as a comic working with a straight man, with his star rising all the while, again quite slowly. In 1934, he would meet and marry chorus girl Anne Battler, and those two were married for the entirety of his life. Very rare in Hollywood is why I mentioned that, especially in this era. After that burlesque company folded as a result of the Great Depression, Costello worked for several stock burlesque producers, which was where his path crossed with Bud Abbott several times. It was a small community. It was bound to happen. But they wouldn't work together until 1935 in New York City after Costello's straight man got sick. This occurred at the Elting Theater on 42nd Street in New York City. Before that fateful night, Abbott had already been admiring Costello's work, noticing that Costello's straight man just wasn't up to snuff for the caliber of comedian that Costello was. Instead of reigning in the comedian when he went too crazy in his improv, as he was one to do, the straight man couldn't pull him back in. This would make the performance more of a chaotic blob of humor that one couldn't make sense of. 
Abbott soon realized that he himself would be Costello's perfect straight man. They'd team up here and there for the next year or so, but formally became a partnership after a dinner in 1936 at the insistence of Abbott's wife. Abbott and Costello was born. The two next joined the New York-based burlesque review Life Begins at Minsky's in 1936, which is where they'd spend the next several years perfecting their act, which they would do continuously throughout their career. It was a great training ground because the two had to ensure that they were funnier than the dancers were sexy and alluring. Otherwise, nobody would have given them the time of day. Another thing that would set them apart from other burlesque comedians, almost as if they were one day planning to transition to film, was that their act was always clean. There was never dirty language. There was never really like sexy innuendos. It was always very family friendly, which was odd for burlesque. And it was here their personas adapted a little bit more. Abbott would typically play the smart con man of the two, while Costello played the well-natured simpleton who wouldn't know an opportunity if it smacked him on the head. And I know that because it did many times in their films. Financially, Abbott would make more money, earning 60% of the duo's overall take. The straight man typically got paid more, and that's why his name went first, as they were considered the more valuable member of the team. In 1937, New York City shut down all of the burlesque houses because they had just gotten too horny and crazy. But don't worry, Abbott and Costello weren't there. They had already transitioned to vaudeville, which was more of a variety show. They did a long stint at a vaudeville venue in Atlantic City, in fact. This would lead to gigs in nightclubs and theaters, so they were kind of becoming more of like a legit act versus just like telling jokes at a strip club, basically, is sort of how it was viewed back then. And ultimately, all of this would lead them to another medium that was taking the world by storm though not the one you're probably thinking. As radio became the way for people to entertain themselves within their own home, soon our heroes this week would be sending their vaudeville acts through the airwaves into millions of American households. Despite reservations from Abbott, he and Costello would begin working in radio in February 1938, first appearing on the Kate Smith Hour, filling in for a comedian friend of theirs who was heading to Hollywood to do a screen test for Columbia. Suddenly, the double act was reaching millions of ears across the country. Just one small problem. The similarities between Abbott and Costello's voices made it difficult for radio listeners to tell the two apart. Obviously, that had not been an issue when they were on stage. To combat this, Costello took on the high-pitched falsetto voice for which he'd be known for throughout his career. Their famous Who's On First routine was first performed for a national radio audience in March of 1938, and reactions to the bit was so positive that they were performing the bit once a month on the show. Evan Costello performed on the Kate Smith Hour as regulars for about a year and a half, while also landing roles in a Broadway review in 1939. In the summer of 1940, they got their own radio show, The Abbott and Costello Show, and by the end of that summer, they'd be making their feature film debut. Universal Pictures signed the duo for the 1940 musical One Night in the Tropics. They were in supporting roles, billed as, quote, radio's favorite nitwits, and stole every single scene they were in. 
In the film, the duo did several of their classic routines, including Who's On First. And while the film flopped, everyone had loved Abbott and Costello, so Universal decided to take a chance on them. The duo were signed to a two-picture contract, and their second film for the studio was 1941's Buck Privates. In the film, the duo play men that are accidentally drafted into the army. The timing could not have been more perfect, if you could call it perfect, as the draft had just been implemented as the United States entered World War II. The film had been shot over just 20 days and was a massive hit, earning $4 million at the box office against a $200,000 budget and launched Abbott and Costello into the film Superstar Strata. Throughout Buck Privates and throughout their just entire careers, the duo had peppered in their stage acts, with many not realizing that most of them were decades old and very famous burlesque routines. What made it sort of elevated for Abbott Costello was their comedic timing and their on-screen chemistry. But anytime they go into like a weird little like skit feeling thing when you watch one of their movies, you're very likely watching one of their old burlesque routines. The two would almost always make B-pictures for the studio and throughout their entire careers. And for many years, Abbott and Costello's films actually kept Universal afloat because the 40s were not not a great time for that studio. But their films, budgets and general treatment by the studio never actually reflected just how crucial they were to keeping Universal's gates open. And they also just worked them to the bone. Their next film was supposed to be a haunted house comedy, but Buck Privates had been so successful that the studio decided to delay the shooting of the film so the team could quickly shoot and release a second service-based comedy. That film was in the Navy, and it actually initially outgrossed Buck Privates. A theater in Manhattan was open till 5 a.m. each day during the film's opening week as over 49,000 patrons were itching to see the film. Hold That Ghost resumed production once more after In the Navy was completed and also came out in 1941, as did Ride Cowboy and a third service comedy by the boys called Keep Em Flying. All of their 1941 films were big hits and Abbott and Costello were voted the third biggest box office attraction in the country in 1941. And of course... As their stars rose, so did their paychecks. And ultimately, so too did Abbott and Costello's penchant for gambling. The two men who had grown up poor were having trouble trying to figure out exactly what to do with their sudden wealth, this incredible expendable income. Apparently, putting it in a bank was never an option. And they, you know, they had things they liked to do. They, there's nothing wrong with like having fun with your money, but you know, they kind of went a little overboard. They really liked to play poker on the set and extensively did so between takes. And they were uh, notably not good at gambling. So they lost lots and lots of money. Soon they were betting at the racetracks and in Vegas, basically turning a hobby into a full-fledged addiction for both, both of them. Both Abbott and Costello were very, very compulsive gamblers. It has been estimated by historians that the two lost millions of dollars gambling, which would come back and bite them in the ass in a few years. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Universal loaned the team to MGM for a musical comedy, Rio Rita, which released in 1942. During the filming of that picture, Abbott and Costello had their hand in footprints set in concrete at the famous Grauman's Chinese Theater. That was pretty much like the sign, like they were a big deal. 
Back at Universal in 42, they made Pardon My Sarong, a spoof of South Sea Island movies, and the comedy mystery whodunit. 1942 would be probably the peak of their career as theater exhibitors voted Abbott and Costello the number one theatrical draw in the world. They were also the highest paid actors in the entire world. As a result of all this fame, fortune, and success, the duo bought family homes less than a mile from each other through lavish parties at which they were known to hand out $100 bills and adorned their family in the finest money could buy. Their children in documentaries that I watched for this week would look back on the men as loving and would describe their upbringings as, quote, fairy tale like which was, again, a rarity with Hollywood parents. To support the war effort, the duo did a 35-day tour in the summer of 42 to promote and sell war bonds. In that 35 days, they visited over 80 cities. The Treasury Department would credit the duo with $85 million in war bond sales. But all of this success and the tours and the traveling and everything started to take a toll. In March 1943, Costello was stricken with rheumatic fever, which had flared up when Abbott and Costello had returned from a winter tour of army bases. If you don't know, this illness causes inflammation in joints and in the heart, and for Costello, it affected mainly his heart. He was bedridden for six to nine months, depending on the source, which would bring into serious question as to whether or not Abbott and Costello could carry on as a double act. Abbott refused to perform without him, so he was also benched during this time, and the condition would affect Costello off and on for the remainder of his life. And if that wasn't enough to make matters just infinitely worse, on November 4th, 1943, the same day that Costello had returned to radio work, his infant son, Lou Jr., died in the family swimming pool just two days before his first birthday. According to those who knew him, Costello was never the same lighthearted man he'd once been. After Costello recovered, the duo returned to MGM for 1944's Lost in a Harem, as well as 1945's Abbott and Costello in Hollywood. Between those two films, the duo starred in a string of Universal Pictures as well, averaging about three to four films a year. But trouble was about to bubble up as their fame began to falter. In 1945, a rift developed when Abbott hired a maid who had been fired by Costello. Costello tried to make Abbott fire her too, but he refused. Why was this woman an issue? I don't know. I couldn't find a reason. But the two used the disagreement to amplify feelings towards each other they'd been feeling for a while. By this point, you know, the the act was getting old. They were around each other constantly. And this was leading to just tensions between the two of them. So it kind of sounds like it wasn't so much that he'd hired this maid that had gotten fired. It was just like they were looking for anything to just kind of like strike the match so they could just like get a break. Just It wasn't about the maid. It was what the maid represented, basically. Costello was so mad that this had happened that he refused to speak to Abbott unless the two were performing together. The following year, they made just two films, including The Time of Their Lives. And in both of the films they shot this year, they appeared as separate characters rather than as a team. This was, of course, likely due to the tensions between them, but it also likely had something to do with the fact that their popularity was beginning to wane just four years after it had begun. 
Abbott would resolve the tiff about a year later when he helped Costello raise money for a youth foundation for underprivileged children, which was called the Lou Costello Jr. Youth Foundation. The facility opened in 1947 and serves the Boyle Heights District of Los Angeles to this day. Abbott and Costello reunited as a team in Buck Privates Comes Home in 1947, which was a sequel, of course, to their 1941 hit. They also signed a new contract with Universal, which allowed them to appear in films outside of their studio contract. But all the while, they were still losing popularity, so that was obviously a concern. But then, one film turned everything around. That was 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which co-starred horror icons Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. as Dracula and the Wolfman, respectively. Ironically, Universal revived two of their stale properties, Abbott and Costello and the Monster Films, with one single film, churning out a massive hit that revitalized Abbott and Costello's careers. Several Abbott and Costello meets insert monsters here films followed. They could have just pretty much rested on their laurels at that point, but they didn't. Because in 1951, they made their television debuts during the Colgate Comedy Hour, leading to a show of their own, The Abbott and Costello Show, which aired from the fall of 1952 to the spring of 1954. The show was in syndication on over 40 television stations across the United States and was loosely based on their radio series. In the show, the two cast themselves as unemployed loafers. One of the show's running gags involved Abbott perpetually hounding Costello to get a job, while Abbott himself was gainfully unemployed. That was very much like a job of the week type situation. In 1954, the duo had to pull out of a film due to Costello's ill health. The rheumatic thing was flaring up and had to be replaced. Their last two films for Universal were Abbott and Costello Meet the Keystone Cops from 1955 and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, which was also 1955. And once again, Abbott and Costello's popularity was beginning to wane with the emergence of comedians like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. The amount of content they were appearing in at the time was not helping either. Each year, they made at least two new films, while their older films were continuously being re-released. Plus, they had a television series that was widely syndicated, and they were basically doing the same routines or versions of the same routines on, on all of them. It was just the same stuff, just slightly different. Like, the plot didn't really matter. Like, you went to go see the sketches, but they'd already seen the sketches a whole bunch of times, and people were just kind of tired of it. And you think, like, just come up with new material, but it turned out Abbott and Costello were pretty afraid to debut new material. So that's why they constantly performed old stuff. It's just, it's wild to think about. They're considered comedy masters, but they were just really just incredibly set in their ways. And, you know, on top of that, let's just throw in some more bad things to happen. In 1953, the IRS began auditing the duo and charged the team for back taxes as their accountant had not only not been filing income tax forms for the team, but he was stealing a bit off the top and had run off to Mexico for good measure. So when they got audited, these two had no receipts. The amount of money they owed forced Abbott and Costello to sell their homes and most of their assets, including the rights to most of their films. This event would trigger the beginning of the end. Universal dropped the comedy team in 1955 after they could not agree on contract terms. 
1956, they made one independent film, Dance With Me Henry, which was their 36th and final film together and was neither a critical nor a financial success. Abbott and Costello formally dissolved their partnership in 1957. Several reasons have been cited over the years. They were sick of being around each other. Abbott was drinking excessively, which Costello didn't like. And also, Costello was just kind of over the same shit every day. He could see that their brand of comedy was becoming a relic, and Costello would be the one to formally end the partnership. Though, while that is the uh, one that's like in the biographies, I did find one fun story about one person claiming to be responsible for ending the partnership. And that was swashbuckler Errol Flynn, who would take credit for the breakup in his posthumously published autobiography. Flynn was a chronic practical joker and claimed that he'd invited Abbott and Costello along with their wives and children to his house for dinner. And afterwards, he like ushered them into a room to show a home movie that, quote unquote, accidentally turned out to be hardcore porn. While Flynn pretended to be shocked at what he was seeing, Abbott and Costello blamed each other for the film's substitution, which led to the partnership being over. Which, you know, it, it, that doesn't sound like a real thing. But if it is true, it, again, just kind of seems like they were looking for an excuse. But I honestly doubt this actually happened. In his final years, Costello made about 10 solo appearances on a variety of television shows, doing many of the old routines without Abbott. He even got good reviews for a dramatic turn on the television show Wagon Train in 1958. On March 3rd, 1959, not long after completing his lone solo film, The 30-Foot Bride of Candy Rock, Lou Costello died at home of a heart attack three days shy of his 53rd birthday. A year later, Abbott attempted a comeback in 1960 with new partner Candy Candido. Although the new act received good reviews, Abbott quit, saying, quote, No one could ever live up to Lou. Abbott made a solo dramatic appearance on an episode of General Electric Theater in 1961, and one of his last gigs was in 1966, when Abbott played himself in an animated series of 156 five-minute Abbott and Costello cartoons made by Hanna-Barbera. Costello's character was voiced by Stan Irwin. After a half century dealing with epilepsy and a series of strokes later in his life, Bud Abbott died of cancer on April 24th, 1974. He was 78 years old. Abbott and Costello's legacy lives within the preservation of the burlesque routines recorded for posterity within their radio, TV, and film work, and these classic routines might otherwise have been lost to time had they not done so. Their simple comedic styles brought joy to a wartime audience in its day and continue to influence up-and-coming comedians now. But in all seriousness, who was on first? When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. Why not? The man's entitled to it. Who is? Yes. So who gets it? Why shouldn't he? Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. <laughs> After all, the man earns it. Who does? Absolutely. Well, all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? Oh, no, no. What is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? That's what I'm trying to find out. Well, don't change the players. I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy. What's the guy's name on first base? What's the guy's name on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking about him. 
How did I get on third base? You mentioned his name. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast i've also set up support page the link of which you can find in the show notes if you'd like to help out in any way i'd very much appreciate it i've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee i've also got merch check it out at the link in the show notes Next week, we look into the lives and careers of two performers who took us on many a road, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Now I throw the ball to first base, whoever it is drops the ball, so the guy runs to second. Mm -hmm. Who picks up the ball and throws it to what? What throws it to I don't know? I don't know, throws it back to tomorrow? A triple play. Yeah, it could be. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball, to be caused. Why? I don't know. He's on third, and I don't care. What was that? I said, I don't care. Oh, that's our shortstop. Here it-